All right, we are at July 1, and for these five weeks, we're going to spend time focusing on the church in our Sunday night Bible hour, and I hope that will be an encouragement to you. It, it's already been an encouragement to me as I've gone back and been reminded and looked forward to what we're going to study. We're going to take the evening tonight and look at what Christ said about the church in Matthew chapter 16. So we are going back to the time before the beginning of the church. This is the very first mention of the church by our Lord with His disciples. And this is a powerful uh, paragraph that we'll find in Matthew. Um, We're going to examine the early days of the church next week in Acts chapter 2 and look at what they were busy about in the first moments of the church in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost. And we'll spend the following two weeks in the book of Ephesians looking at what Paul commended the Ephesian church to be centered on and to be focused on as they pursued a biblical ministry. And I trust that will be an encouragement to us. And then we'll conclude with David coming and teaching us in the evening service the last week of July. We'll conclude with the defining mark of the church. And we'll examine what Paul says about love and its marks in us as a body in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's a common passage to us, and yet most of us don't think of it as a church paragraph or passage. And that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 13 is. It's to mark what we're all about as a group as we gather together. And so that's how we're going to conclude our time. So we'll go back to Christ this evening. We'll look at the early church and their foundation next week. We'll spend two weeks in Ephesians chapter 4. And then we'll conclude with the defining mark of the church, and that being love for God and love for one another And we'll study, particularly that night, we'll study 1 Corinthians 13. All right, all that is Lord willing and the creek don't rise. And so uh, he may change those plans. I've been in enough services where those things just didn't happen. In fact, we might not get through tonight and then we'll already be bumped into August. No, I I plan to stay on schedule. I'm a schedule guy. So we're going to try to stay focused on what we've got before us uh, this evening and in the weeks ahead. All right, Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to study verses 13 to 20 tonight. And as we go to this section, I think it's important for us, because this section has so much in it, we will not be able to exhaust Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20 at any level. But I want to focus on just a few verses, but we need to, we really need to ground ourselves in the context of what is happening in this section of Scripture. Um, The disciples are gathered with Christ. Um, They're two and a half years into the three-year ministry of Christ at this point. To get your mind basically around uh, where we are in the ministry of Christ, we're two and a half years in to the three-year totality of His ministry. And by this point, there's a lot of confusion about who He is and about what He's here to accomplish on the earth. And so here Jesus is walking along with the disciples just outside of Caesarea Philippi. And I know you've been spending a lot of time in your private devotion with the Lord in your map section of your Bible, uh, the unknown of our Bibles. But if you flip back into your map section, let's do that just for exercise. Let's go to our maps. Some of you, this is a first-time adventure. We're going to the map section, and we're actually going to look at something there that means something. Okay? Let's find out where Jesus and His disciples are. You probably have a map that's got the ministry of Jesus as its marking. You'll see a big body of water in the middle of the land. That's the Dead Sea. Everybody getting it? We there? We got our Middle Eastern uh, geography down? There's the Dead Sea. Go due north and you'll find the Sea of Galilee. Got the Sea of Galilee? Very good. If you go straight north out of the Sea of Galilee, 25 miles is all that is, up to the very probably top section of your map, you're going to see Caesarea Philippi. I hope you see Caesarea Philippi or you'll never go back to your map section because you didn't find the one thing that you went there to look at. It's north of Lake Hula if you're looking at a map that has that lake marked out, which is a smaller lake north of Galilee. This is where Jesus is. This is a a generally Gentile area. This is a Roman province that was set up, obviously named for Caesar, and set apart from from another town that was named the same name by the marking Philippi and uh, to honor Philip. And so here is where Jesus is centered. Now, the other Gospels tell us he's not already in Caesarea Philippi. He's actually on the outskirts of the town. 
and he's walking with his disciples. And during this phase of Jesus' ministry, he moves more uh, into the Gentile country than he had ever before. And he is getting away from the masses that are following him. He's done a number of phenomenal miracles. He's fed them in mass quantity with very little amount of food. He has healed many. And he is moving further and further away in somewhat of a frustrated sense where the masses are clamoring him to be what he is not to be. And they're taking advantage of him as their own self-made Messiah. And uh, we'll see that they have a very inaccurate view of even who Jesus is in this paragraph. Okay, But that's who they are. That's where they are. They're 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is just with the twelve. Now, it's important that we understand that because Jesus is about to uncover some of the most important, if not the most important information that He has pointedly revealed to His disciples right in this paragraph. And this is not easy stuff. This is a very difficult paragraph to unpack in the amount of time that we're going to try to do it. And so we plan to be out of here somewhere around 9 o'clock and we'll get you home just in time for bed, okay? No, we'll try to make it a little quicker, a little quicker than that. The disciples by this point in Jesus' ministry, just like the masses, are generally confused. They are, they are confused about what the kingdom will be. They're confused about when it will come. And they're confused about how exactly Jesus is going to bring it into existence. He has talked a lot about the kingdom. And the disciples at best are antsy for the kingdom to get here. Right? These are men who were hard-working, blue-collar men who left everything they had. They've been living without a home. They've been living day-to-day with Jesus for two and a half years now. They've been wandering the countryside with Him, waiting for this kingdom to come into place where He would rule and they assumed they would be rulers with Him. Right? They argued a lot about who would be where in the kingdom when they got their newest ruler robes and they got to set up their authority and eat high on the hog and do all the things that the kingdom would offer them. And by this point, I'm sure the disciples are wondering, when is this going to happen? And when will that Roman government be crushed that is so oppressive to the Jewish people? Is Jesus really in control of this situation? Or have things gotten completely out of hand to where they are to the point of saying, Maybe he is not who he claims to be. And it's at this tired point, away from the crowds, after all the miracles that they've seen, that Jesus points the most direct and most difficult and the most important question to these disciples and then unfolds the future for his people in the church. And that's what we're going to study this evening. All right? That's the context of where we are. And in that context, Jesus begins His discussion with His disciples. And let's read it together, beginning in verse 13. Jesus says in verse 13, Now when Jesus came... Or I'm sorry, Matthew tells us in verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, not just a casual question, walking along with the Lord, He says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do they say that I am? And the disciples said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he turns and he points directly at them and says to them, But who do you, that being plural, who do you, disciples, say that I am? And Simon Peter, spokesman for the disciples, self-designated spokesman, speaks right up and says, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged them. He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And this is the word of the Lord that we'll study this evening. 
Question number one, who does the world around us say that I am? And Jesus poses to these disciples to make a very clear point. He asks them, who do the masses think I am? When you're out and about, when you're hobnobbing with your friends, when you're eating amongst the 4,000 or the 5,000, you're having your loaves and fish in the miracle sessions, who are they saying I am? When you're in the marketplace, when you're out with your families, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And the answers are very telling. The disciples quickly disclose some of the myths about the person of Jesus Christ. The first one is John the Baptist. They Some believe that he was John the Baptist reincarnate. In fact, John the Baptist had already died. His head had been lopped off. And Herod believed that Jesus was a reincarnation, a resurrected John the Baptist ministering because of the things that he was doing and because of the message that he was proclaiming. And so there were some who thought he was the reincarnated the resurrected John the Baptist, along with Herod the pagan. Some were saying Elijah, the greatest prophet of Israel, revered among the people of Israel as the one who had called off the rain and called back on the rain and had stood against the prophets of Baal, you remember in 1 Kings 17. Because in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, at the end of their Old Testament scrolls, which would have been read in the synagogues when they gathered together, there at the end of the scroll it said that God would send an Elijah, right? Before the promised one came. And so here they were saying, surely this one, this Jesus who is here, is the Elijah that's been promised. He's the front runner for the promised Messiah. And we know because the study of our Scriptures, that there was an Elijah sent who came and led the way for the Messiah. And that Elijah was who? Who was the Elijah that was sent? The prophet sent ahead of the Messiah. Who was that? John the Baptist. Very good. And John the Baptist served as the fulfillment of that prophecy. And then lastly, some are saying that he was Jeremiah or another prophet. And Jeremiah was marked out as the one who lamented the situation that the people of God found them in in his time. And so, generally speaking, the people had pegged Jesus, the masses, after all that He had done, all the healing that they had seen, all the miracles that they had witnessed with their own eyes, their end analysis of the person of Jesus Christ was that He was a great prophet. He was even a promised prophet. And all of these assessments leave Jesus as only the forerunner to the Messiah that God had promised His covenant people. And as I thought through that, I thought, it's amazing, it's remarkable that nothing's changed, right? Really, nothing's changed. If you ever listen to anything on the History Channel about Jesus, I hope you don't. PBS, I hope you don't. Please do not derive your theology from those those television shows, but you will at least hear that Jesus was a great teacher. He was a great humanitarian. He was a great prophet. He was the ultimate hero for the poor, for the weak. Right? And all of those designations sound so noble, sound so kind, and yet they leave Jesus Christ as either a raging lunatic who thought He was something that He wasn't, or an outright liar who claimed to be something that he wasn't. So it's not changed. The people, in their kindness, had pegged Jesus as a good man, a good teacher, a prophet, and a hero for their poor and for their weak. And so Jesus, without skipping a beat, moves to the disciples themselves and He asks the most pointed and the most important question. Verse 15, Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And we could stop here and we probably will at some point come back to this question. In fact, I know we will because we're going to study the book of Luke together. That's where we'll begin our systematic study in just a few weeks. And we'll get there in Luke where Jesus asked this same question. And this is truly the ultimate question. Right? This is the eternal question. John MacArthur in his commentary says it's as if 
Every individual is thrown up against the wall of eternity and asked, who do you say that I am? It is the defining mark between false religion and true religion. It is the defining mark between heaven and hell. This question basically boils down the two groups of people that exist in the world. There's only two groups. There are those who get the answer right, and there are those who get the answer wrong. And we'll see, in just a little bit, that those who get the answer right owe that in no way to themselves. It's not an issue of intellect. It's not an issue of information. The ones who get it right have had it revealed to them by a gracious God. And so here is the ultimate question. The screws are tightened down and Jesus asks these disciples, these ones who have walked with Him, talked with Him, been in communion and fellowship with Him in a very personal way, who do you say that I am? And I ask you tonight, who do you say that Jesus is? Truly, who is He? And what does your life back up that you believe to be the truth about the identity of Jesus Christ? You may have the right answer verbally. We may have the right knowledge to say, I got the right answer. I know the answer. I can read it. It's right there. I know which one I'm supposed to say. And yet, does your life match a belief, a confession of of what you claim to believe about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is the test. And here the disciples are put on the spot. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers for the group, as always, you are the Christ, Peter says, the Son of the living God. And let's just take a minute. And I, Man, I wish we could stay here, but let's take a moment to unpack what Peter just said. Peter just said, you are the Christ. Christos, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament word for what? Messiah. Peter just outright said, you are the Messiah. You're not the prophet that foretells Him. You're not the one who comes before Him. You are the promised one. You are the Messiah. Jesus, you are the one. And he concludes his statement with a profession of the full deity of Jesus Christ. He says, you are the Son of the living God. What did Jesus ask, or how did he ask and identify himself in verse 13? He asked, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? A designation that he gave himself often. And here, Peter answers with such clarity, the Son of Man is no other than the Son of the living God. And he is the promised Christ. And Jesus responds, and Peter, you know, many have said Peter had a foot-shaped mouth. He, uh, he was constantly speaking up. And later in just a few chapters, he's going to say some things that he's going to really regret. In fact, right after he gets done with this, you'll remember that in verse 23, Jesus calls Peter Satan, right? He says, get behind me, Satan. So poor Peter, he got one answer right, and I'm glad for him that he got this right. And here's Jesus' response to him. Verse 17, Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He calls him by his given name. Barjona would have been his last name, the son of Jonathan, shortened to Jonah. And then he commends him for this reason. Here's Jesus' response. Good answer, Peter. Good answer, Simon. But you didn't come to that conclusion on your own. Let's just take one moment of our night. And this is all our introduction. We're not, even, we're not even to where we're going to study. But let's take a moment to focus on the fact that if, in fact, we know Christ, we know the Son of the living God, we see Jesus as the full fulfillment of the Messianic promises. He's the Messiah. He's the promised One. He is the Savior of mankind. That fact has been given to us by the Father who is in heaven. Peter says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. That's just a Jewish way of saying, you didn't come by this on your own. This is not something that you derived of your own understanding. Your brain power, Peter, Simon, Barjona, did not discipline you enough to get the facts right. You are not somehow different from the masses who have seen the same miracles, heard the same sermons, and been around Jesus at the same moments 
Simon is not somehow set apart because of how he understood and perceived and interpreted the circumstances around him. Jesus says, blessed are you. You've got it right. And yet he reminds him, the Father has revealed this from heaven. And as we, as I stand and you sit here this evening, if in fact we have been, we have been brought to the truth, and the person and work of Christ has been revealed to us, let's rejoice in the fact that we have not done that in and of ourselves. It's been given to us by the Father who is in heaven. He has revealed it to us. He has opened our eyes. We were dead and we were made alive. Colossians 1 talked about us being dead in our trespasses. Ephesians 2, but God. But God. While we were dead, God intervened and revealed to us the reality of who His Son is. What a powerful truth. And so here they are, walking along the road. We would assume in some level of dismay about the Kingdom of God, the work of Christ, and Jesus pointedly turns their focus and says, who do you say that I am? Peter, speaking for the group, proclaims, this is what we believe. This is what we confess. This is the stamp we are willing to wear. And as John reminded us, we are slaves of Christ. We willingly submit ourselves because You are the Messiah and You are God. And then he goes on in verses 18-20, to and this is where we're going to center our focus, and in further response to this confession. So get the context. We're in direct line with that confession from Peter. Jesus offers four certainties in regard to His relationship to the church. Four certainties in relationship to the coming assembly of God's people. The disciples had no idea that there would be a church. Right? They had no idea. The Old Testament prophets had no idea that there would be a church. That there would be a gap between the coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And that was the confusion. Was that Jesus is here and obviously He's going to overthrow the government and we're going to have a governmental Messiah who is going to save us from our oppression. And Jesus here discloses that there is a much greater plan. And He'll go on in the paragraph after this one to explain to them that He's going to die. And these had to be shocking times with Jesus along the road outside of Caesarea Philippi. These had to be light bulb coming on moments where they learned the great truths of the work of Christ. So here are these four certainties, and we won't spend a long time with them, but they're found in verses 18 and 19, and then we'll conclude with verse 20. Certainty number one about Christ and the church is that Jesus Christ owns the church. It's His. Jesus Christ owns the church. He will be the one to decide how it's built and maintained. He will determine who has leadership delegated to them in His church, and He will die to purchase His church. And we see that just in the upcoming chapter, or paragraph rather, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is His church. Verse 18 says, I will build My church. He starts the, the verse by saying, I tell you, Simon... I tell you, Peter, I will build My church. Jesus takes full ownership of the church that would develop, that would be founded at the day of Pentecost. And rightly so, because He would die to pay the price for us to exist as His church and as His people. Now, this evening when we come to realize and acknowledge and confess that Jesus owns the church, I want us to be acutely aware of whose ownership we operate under as Grace Church. Because we live in a democratic country, we've grown up around the kind of mentality that goes into, well, whose church do you go to? In fact, when we were in the valley, that was a common question. Whose church? Well, we go to John MacArthur's church. And uh, that's not true. John will be the first to tell you. And this is not Adam Bailey's church. That sounds funny even saying it. 
I feel like I need to wash my mouth out with soap. This is not Adam Bailey's church. I got the right knot in there. This is not David Morris's church. This is not the leadership team's church. This is not your church. There's only one ruler, head, owner who has purchased us and who rules over us as the ultimate master and the good and loving master, and that is Jesus Christ. And when we come to our church and our gathering and we gather together, let's be acutely aware that it is for Him and it is under Him that we meet. And so your prayer for the leadership team and for your elders here needs to be that we would be constantly aware and submissive to our head. Because we do not operate as authority outside of any other authority. We're delegated leaders. We are under shepherds. Because there's only one chief shepherd. And so I want to stand before you right here at the outset of our church and say, this church belongs to Jesus Christ. Grace Church is His. It will submit to Him as the only one to be submitted to. His Word, His revelation to us of His character and of His expectations will be standard setting for Grace Church. There can be no personality strong enough to override the headship of Jesus Christ at Grace Church. And my prayer would be that for decades, as long as the Lord tarries, this church would be one that is focused and submissive under the ownership of Jesus Christ. We've been bought with a price. And because of that, we submit to our owner and our Master and our Lord. Right? Certainty number one is that Jesus Christ owns this church. It's His. And He has the prerogative to do with it as He wills. And He makes promises to it based upon His character. And that brings us to our second certainty that Jesus Christ builds the church. Jesus Christ builds the church. He goes on in verse 18 and He says, And I tell you, you are Peter. You are Petros. You are Rock. And on this rock, on this Petra, I will build my church. Christ here promises to build the church. This is our church growth plan. Okay, This is it. This is the one we're dedicated to. If you want a strategy, we have a strategy. And that is, we trust that Jesus will fulfill His promise as we submit to Him as the head of our church. And His promise is that He'll build us as a church. He promised to build His church, therefore we must rest easy that He will accomplish that promise. Growth here can be both numerical, and it is numerical, and it is spiritual in the church. And He's responsible for both. Alright? Let's get that through our minds. And please, for the sake of my job stability, let's get that through our minds. That Christ is the one who brings people to our church. And that is in the true sense of church. Not those who visit. Not those who come who are not a part of His family. But He adds to His church by saving sinners from their sin and securing for them a place in heaven. And He adds and He builds His church. Not only that, those of us who are in His church, He develops. He grows us. We're sanctified. And His truth is constantly washing us and developing our understanding of Him that we might love Him and glorify Him more purely. That's His work. That's what He accomplishes. And as we center this ministry, Grace Church, as we center our church on the priority and authority of Jesus Christ and on His Word to us, we can look forward to the promise of growth. That's the assurance that we find in this section is that Jesus will in fact build His church. But it's not just left to us as a promise without a foundation. He has here for us some insight into how and upon what He builds the church. Okay? And how He will even build Grace Church of the Valley. Our responsibility to the Lord of the church is faithfulness and obedience. 
And that will be the measure of your success and my success as slaves of Christ here on the earth. He will work out the growth that He has promised. And I have often been encouraged by men over the years at conferences that we've been a part of who have faithfully served God in remote places on the planet and have seen little to no numerical growth and yet who have been consumed with the reality that Jesus is in fact building His church. He may not be building it numerically where they exist, but the body of Christ is being built and developed and grown up into its fullness until we are presented to the Father as the bride of Christ, spotless in our perfection because of what He has accomplished. And so I remind you of that tonight. Now, I've kind of glossed over one of the most difficult sections interpretively in our entire Bible. So I'm going to go back and we're going to take a moment to look at it. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And if all the sky were parchment made, we cannot fill up the interpretations of on this rock. Okay? What is Jesus saying? Who is or what is he pointing at to say this is the rock? There are numerous interpretations. Some are errant in that Peter is the rock to the point of the founder and first head of the church delegated by Christ and all successors after him are to be called father. That he is the first papal designation in scripture. Rome has pushed that view forward for its entire existence. We find no fruit of that in normal hermeneutic. Jesus is certainly not designating Peter as some delegated head with succession and perfection in his leadership. I don't believe either that on this rock is pointing back to Jesus because he says, I will build my church. It would be a very confusing sentence for Jesus to be saying, on me, I will build my church. He's, he's not pointing back as much as he is making reference to what has just been said. And I believe with with caution, he is pointing back at Peter. The play on words here is very clear grammatically. He's using Aramaic, actually, and he's saying, you are Petros, and on this Petra, you're a stone, and on this rock, this confession that you have made, Peter, I'm going to build the church. And Peter speaks as a representation of the whole And so whether you take this as Peter's confession or whether you take this as the confession itself set apart from Peter or whether we take this as the confession of Peter for the whole of the disciples that were standing there with Jesus, the point is the same, that it's on the confession that Peter has made. The reality that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that He is the Son of the living God is the very basis upon which Christ will build His church. It's that confession. It's that statement that is the foundation, is the bedrock of our existence as God's people during this time. And it is on that bedrock that Jesus makes the promise of growth. Okay? That's a simple thought, and yet that has profound implications on our existence together. Because our existence as a church, as Grace Church of the Valley, must be centered on this confession. That is, those who are to join with us, and we'll talk about church membership in the weeks ahead, are to be those who clearly confess and live in reality of this statement that Jesus is the Messiah and that He is the Son of the living God. This is the basis for the promise. Peter would indeed play a founding role in the church. There's no doubt about it. When we come to Acts chapter 1 and 2, Peter is definitely the centerpiece of leadership in the church. And his confession is the basis upon which the church has grown to this day and will continue to grow into the future. And yet it is not Peter in and of himself. Jesus has just reminded Peter of that. It's not Peter that is somehow set apart. Peter is simply the vessel that has been that has been the spokesman for the truth. He has had it revealed to him, and he stands now with the confession for the twelve as the foundational statement of the church. You say, what is our statement of faith? Well, we have a long document 
to outline our statement of faith. And yet that document and all of its in, uh, details and intricate uh, side sections and all of its attention to focusing on biblical doctrine, all of that flows back to this, to this statement, to this confession. That Jesus is, in fact, who He said He was. He is the promised one and He is the Son of the living God. That's certainty number two. We've got two more in about two minutes. Confession, or certainty number three, Jesus Christ protects the church. So we've seen that Jesus is in fact the owner of the church. Jesus Christ will grow His church. He's promised that. And now this third certainty is that Jesus Christ protects His church. And that's in the second half of verse 18. Here is the second half of the promise that's given to us in verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, you are stone, and on this rock, this confession that's been made, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. These are not passing comments. These are not proverbs. These are not general truths that may or may not happen and have exceptions. These are definitive promises from the head of the church. He will build it as it is built upon the rock of the confession of His messianic promise. And secondly, He will protect it. He will protect us. We're His church. We're gathered together in His name. We're assembled because of Him. And because of that, we can look at this promise and find great hope for our church because as we're centered and growing on the foundation of that confession, the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Now, the gates of hell have often been interpreted as Satan and his forces. Maybe you've understood it that way. Certainly reason for that because of hell being mentioned and hell being understood throughout Scripture as the domain of Satan and his forces. And yet here, the word for hell is the same word that is found maybe in your margin for Hades. Jesus here says that the gates of Hades, which is the Old Testament resting place of the dead, saved or unsaved, the place of the dead, the gates of the place of the dead, will not prevail against this church. What is Jesus saying? What is He promising in His protection? We look at gates and then we look at Hades. And I think it's clear that Jesus' promise here is that death will never reign victorious over His church. The gates of Hades will not swing open and engulf His church. Death will not reign. Death will not be victorious because His church will be bought with His own death and will be secured with His own resurrection. And death will not stand in victory over the church. The church will not die. If you're a part of the church, you are one who confesses Jesus as the Messiah, placing your faith in His accomplishment at cross, at the cross and His accomplishment in raising from the dead then you will not die. Death will not be victorious. Death will have no sting. This is the promise of our protector. D.A. Carson says this in his commentary on this section. He says, This claim is ridiculous if Jesus is nothing but an overconfident popular preacher in an unimportant vassal state of first century Rome. Did you catch that? This claim that the church will not die is ridiculous. If Jesus is nothing but an overconfident popular preacher or a good man or a good prophet in an unimportant vassal state, that being Caesarea Philippi, a first century Rome, it is the basis of all hope for those who see Jesus as the Messiah who builds His people. And so once again, we're presented with a stark reality when we go to the words of Christ. Either He is who He claims to be or He is a liar or he is a raging lunatic who is claiming things outside of his head. Because here he claims that the church will not die. The gates of Hades, the gates of death, will never swing open and engulf in victory the church. 
First certainty is that Jesus owns us as a church. The second one is that He builds His church, and that's us included. The third one is that He protects us, that we'll never die because of what He's accomplished. And then the fourth certainty that we find in this powerful little passage is that He rules the church. Jesus Christ rules and delegates leadership to the church. Verse 19 is another very difficult section of our Bible. I will give you the keys. Speaking now to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Or shall have been loosed. Or shall have been bound. These are difficult words. What in the world is Jesus telling Peter? And what, what leadership, what authority has just been granted as a stewardship to Peter? That whatever he binds and whatever he looses, it will be done in heaven. What is this claim? And I would stand before you tonight and tell you that this is the delegated leadership of all who profess and confess what Peter has confessed. And as he operates and as we operate within the bounds of that confession, all that we judge in the church, Matthew 18, which is coming, and all that we open to those around us will in fact have the stamp of heaven's kingdom placed upon it. Bind and loose. Obviously, we, with keys, we understand that this is opening or closing. And so in other words, all those who Peter closes the kingdom of heaven to and all those who he opens the kingdom of heaven to will in fact have also been opened and closed in heaven itself. The keys are the tool to open and close the kingdom and the confession of Peter and the true church, including us tonight, is the standard by which the binding and loosing must take place. So in other words, let me try to get this clear for you. As Peter operates and stands in some judgment of who is and who is not a part of the church. And as Peter, as a delegated leader, an apostle in the church, makes judgments of who is in fact a part of the kingdom and who is in fact not a part of the kingdom, catch this, according to the confession that he has made, that being that Jesus Christ as Messiah and Son of the living God is the standard by which all are judged, he will be operating in full accordance with the very kingdom of heaven. And in fact, God Himself will stamp those judgments as being heaven stamped. As we operate as a church, and we stand and we evangelize our community and we share the gospel, the good news with our community, the only judgment tool that we have for whether or not someone is in fact a part of the kingdom is the confession of Jesus as Messiah and Son of the living God. And as we use that as the tool by which we proclaim to people, you are not going to heaven. Or as Christ works through you, it seems as He bears fruit and you endure because of your confession, you in fact will spend an eternity in heaven. As we promise people heaven, or as we deny people heaven, if the confession that Peter makes here is the confession that we are operating under, it is the standard by which we operate, we are acting and speaking and judging under the very action and judgment and speech of heaven itself. Because God has revealed it to us and He has given us His Word as that standard. That's an amazing reality. Jesus owns us as a church. He builds us as a church. He protects us as a church. And He delegates leadership and rulership as our head. And as we confess Him for who He is, turning from ourselves and our sin and placing our full confidence in the promised One, we will then be able to loose and to bind, to open and to close the very kingdom of heaven. Powerful and dramatic words. Daunting words. Intimidating words, are they not? To think that we would have the audacity to say, you are going to hell if you do not confess Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of the living God 
And yet, here Jesus promises Peter, and he promises us as indirect recipients, that as we do that in accordance with the truth, that will be stamped with the approval from heaven itself. That's a tremendous confidence that we have. What a bolstering behind us. What a backbone that that gives us as we evangelize those around us. We come with compassion to the lost. We want to see people come to know the Lord. And yet, this is our backbone. This is our understanding that any who answer that question with anything other than He is the Messiah, He is the Christ, He is the Savior, the Son of the living God, they will not see the kingdom of heaven. And those who do will in fact see the kingdom of heaven. The doors will be swung open. The key will go in. And the doors will be unlocked. This confession has provided the keys to lock and unlock the kingdom of heaven. So those are the four certainties that we found in just these last two verses. And I think for sure we have bitten off a chunk that is much bigger than we could chew and swallow tonight. And yet I trust that these are encouraging words from our Lord because He is in fact the author of what we're doing here and He is the finisher of what we're doing here as a church. Now he ends in verse 20, concludes this section. Matthew tells us that Jesus then, right on the heels of that, He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that He was the Christ. Have you ever been curious about that as you've read your Gospels and you've read through there and you've kind of wondered, why, why did Jesus say that? What is he doing? That seems to be anti-evangelism. Why is Jesus telling these 12 people, who he would then tell in Matthew 28, to go into all the world and make disciples of every man, go and do it all and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Why would he say, right here, right now, I'm charging you not to tell anyone. He healed the maniac and he tells him, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. I think the answer to that question is wrapped up in the context of where we find Jesus. Jesus was determined to teach and to perform signs that only the Messiah could do and He would not. He would not proclaim His messianic standing for the world around Him to misconstrue. And you're going to see that as they proclaim Him as Messiah, right, at Palm Sunday, and they lay down their coats and they cry out, Hosanna, here is the promised one. They in fact have no idea who He is. And so Jesus here protects the people in His grace, really, from further misconstruing His identity. And as they constantly cried out for a sign, and as the Pharisees and scribes demanded from our Lord that He prove that he was who he said he was. He, re- he refused to say, I am the Messiah. He constantly healed and left it to them to say, now who am I? He taught. He prophesied. He read prophecy in the Old Testament and closed the book. Obviously saying, I'm the fulfillment of these prophecies. And he left it to the people. He left it for them to acknowledge him for who he was. And so he here tells the disciples, I don't want you going around and wearing banners and wearing posters and shouting on the microphone that I'm the Messiah because the world in which we are operating has no concept of what the Messiah truly is. And I will continue to do signs. He will not do many more, but he'll continue to do signs. He'll continue to teach all the way until those very same people kill him because He was not what they wanted Him to be. And the stamp of Messiah would have simply sped up the process of their death pursuit of Jesus Christ, because He was not the Messiah that they wanted Him to be. And so we have a hard truth. We have a hard verse where Jesus says, do not go out and tell them that I am the Christ, the Promised One. And so He further conceals while giving signs and wonders and teaching that would have led anyone who had eyes to see and ears to hear to understand Him as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So here we are at the end of this paragraph, and there's tons of application for us. We could spend all night and all week, and I trust we will, studying these verses and asking God to make clear to us how we can apply them. But there's a few that I thought I'd call out for your attention 
I'll focus them first in the first half of our paragraph in our introduction. Are you in fact one who has the answer correct? Or are you a part of the people who said Jesus was a good teacher? He's a good man. He was a good prophet. He's a, he's a, he's a guide to life. He's a man to follow. What an example. What a humanitarian. What a hero for the weak and the poor. If I could just give myself like Jesus, I'd be such a better person. Or have, in fact, you come to understand and confess and live upon the reality that He is the promised Messiah. Are you submitting as a bride to the groom of the church? And are you eager to see God's work accomplished here at Grace Church as He intends it to be accomplished? That's my hope. That's my prayer for you and for me is that we'll constantly go back to what has, what has the Word of God revealed we are to be about and then set our expectation right down that line because of the Lord, the owner of the church. And it would seem fitting for us to set aside this time in our minds and in our hearts to ask, are we fully committed and living in light of the promises that Christ has made to us as a young, brand new church? He'll watch over us as our head. He'll build us. He'll protect us from death. And ultimately, He will give us the keys and delegate leadership to us as His representatives his ambassadors here on the earth. Those are powerful promises. And we go forth with those promises into our existence as Grace Church of the Valley. Let's pray and thank the Lord for what He's shown us here in this paragraph. Father, thank You so much for these simple words and yet profound truths that we find from our Lord here with the disciples. Sometimes we would, have, we would give anything to be, to be there to walk and to talk, and yet You have given us Your Spirit and You have given us a closed canon, the entirety of Your revelation in the Word of God. And we have such opportunity to sit and to learn and to think and to grasp as Your Spirit gives direction from these simple paragraphs from our Bibles. May we be men and women of the Word. And as we are, may we be consumed with the reality that our Savior and Your Son are the head of this church. And we exist for Him, we exist by Him, and we exist under Him. And may we lean on Him for growth, both numerically and as we grow spiritually. May we lean on our Christ and may we give Him the credit for what is accomplished. And may we rest in His protection, fearing nothing, fearing no end, because we understand that death has been conquered, and that it will not reign victorious over us. The gates of Hades will not prevail. And may we be ever in awe of the truth of Your Gospel that has been entrusted to us as Your ambassadors. And may we go with confidence knowing that as we stand in Your truth, we stand with the stamp of heaven on us. What a reality and what a confidence. Thank You for what You've taught us. May You continue to teach us through this week and may our lives show that we are slaves of Christ, submitted to our head. And we'll give You the praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen.